Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This extra episode is a conversation with Jill Lepore, historian and New Yorker writer, about the events of January the 6th. What do we call them? What actually happened? And what comes next? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Jill, you wrote a piece in The New Yorker a couple of days after what happened on Wednesday. And I say what happened because your piece was partly about what do we call it? And I think everyone who who watched it in real time or like me suddenly got a text telling them something was going on and sort of missed it, recognized lots of features of what happened and, and tried to find the words for it. And it's like a lot of things. It's a bit like, it was a bit like a kind of coup or a parody of a coup, an insurrection, a riot treason and yet as you say none of the words seem right do you have any more sense a few days on is there a word for it i got some wonderful email from readers with their suggestions which was just kind of fascinating also to see everyone struggling with that one was from someone who suggested it should be called epiphany january 6th is epiphany the holiday and i think that was a a wishful label right that somehow it would be, you know, like in the movie The Truman Show, when finally Truman realizes that he's stuck in an artificial city that he can't escape and he's being recorded on television, that somehow this there would be a great revelation for people who bought all the lies that Trump and the conservative media have been spouting for a very long time. I loved that idea. I thought there was something beautiful about that notion. But I think the further we get from the 6th of January, the less it looks to have been an epiphany. I think there's a lot of retrenchment. I spent the morning today listening to Rush Limbaugh's broadcast the day after on January 7th. And uh, uh, Newt Gingrich has a podcast. And I listened to Newt Gingrich's January 10th podcast. And, you know, in addition to following the relative silence of Republican members of Congress, there's there's a lot of defense of, of the insurrection. Is that what they're calling it? Are they calling it an insurrection? Gingrich and Limbaugh? No, they're calling it the Stop the Steal March. Um, so it's still a march for them. Just, it's it just still, ended It's, it's still a march unexpected. for them. I think, and I think Limbaugh said, you know, Limbaugh expressed his disgust with conservative figures who have denounced the violence and said, thank God that Sam Adams... And the original Tea Partiers weren't cowed by people claiming that they were being violent. Right? So, so kind of just trying to resurrect the language of the Tea Party to embrace this as a political revolution that is necessary. You know, Gingrich was can, kind of had an episode called "The American Crusade Continues," I think, or you know, the, the the language of the ongoing crusade, the ongoing attempt to regain control of a government fraudulently seized. So, and these are not, you know, Gingrich and Limbo. These are not marginal figures with small audiences by any means and they're not their audiences are not primarily on twitter or even parlor 
so they're trying to frame it against American history, and and on the other side too, there's been you know, there's been a lot of pushback. It's almost become the cliche against the cliche. The people who all said this is not who we are, and then everyone piled in and said, well, yeah, it is who we are from one side or the other. There's also something quite interesting left to right about how the right always wants to resurrect the American Revolution and the left always wants to resurrect the Civil War. So you hear all this stuff on the right. This is a this is an ongoing American revolution. We are still the Tea Party. We are we are taking the country back against the imperial authority that is the crazy radical liberal left. And then from the left, of course, it looks very much more like the Civil War. This is an insurrection akin to the secession of the Confederate States. The imagery of the Confederate flag being carried around, paraded around inside the Capitol Rotunda was just you know devastating to see. But even the movement, right, to call it an insurrection is to invoke, in particular, the language that was used to bar former Confederate officers and soldiers from holding federal office. Mm. And yet, some of it, so if if you're not American, like me, the business of storming the the legislature, the, the assembly, it also brings to mind and and even relatively recent events like i i was thinking of um in spain i think it was in 1981 when soldiers burst in to the legislative assembly during a session to choose a president and yet of course in this case they weren't soldiers you know the the other thing when you when you think about classic moments of political violence that are also extreme moments of political theater the frame of reference seems wrong because uh-huh. Whatever these people were, they were not you know, officers of the Spanish army trying to foment a coup. It was nothing like that. And yet it had some of that theatre about it. I, I can't wrap my head around it still. Yeah. And that's one of the niceties semantically. It's not a coup if the military is not involved in a technical sense, right? So it's not a coup or even an attempted coup in that regard. But but I think, too, exactly as you suggest, looking to the 1981 comparison, it's been a problem with Trump's entire presidency that reporters and commentators have wanted to look for analogies and precedents in American history. There's really nothing in American history that has been like this at all. Like the 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 stages of decay of our democracy, uh, the, the models are to be found or the examples are to be found in the histories of other countries that are failed democracies, not in the history of the United States. And I think that move, right? I, I, I can't tell you the number of you know times a day an editor or TV producer calls me and says like, what is this like? I don't know. You like you got to talk to a historian of another country. Like this is not. They're really like in in the the desire to find that. Oh well, he's a lot like George Wallace. Well, no, he's actually really not like George Wallace. Like George Wallace was not the president. You know, he's he's a lot like McCarthy, isn't he? Well, no. Yeah, like that. It's a kind of feature of American provincialism too, right? That we can only see in our own past any any edification, right? Where I think so many of the lessons for how to think about what brought Trump to power, what will carry Trumpism forward in history. So many of those lessons come from the histories of other countries. And I think Americans really have to look outward. And that, in a way, is what's so terrifying about it, in that there's so much of similar nationalist populism going on around the world that it's it, to kind of knock that down in the United States is not to mark the end of it by any stretch. So in a way, there are two things I want to ask about that. So one, I totally take your point, and yet at the same time, there is a deep desire not just to find historical analogies, but as it were, to kind of tap the current of this and to sense it going back. So Trump, there's no one like Trump. There's never been anyone like Trump in American history. And yet, 
the sentiments, the emotions, the hatreds that he plays on and plays off do, of course, have deep, deep roots. And there's a kind of dissonance there that I think everyone struggles with, the uniqueness of the phenomenon of Trumpism and the familiarity of some of the things that that it draws on, that it gets its its kind of lifeblood from. Those two things are going on at the same time, aren't they? Yeah, and 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 they are, and it's hard for Americans to confront the piece of it that is so much not about Trump, but about his followers and and their prejudices and their hatreds and their resentments. But I think in a way, it's actually harder for people on the left to see past all those hatreds and prejudices and resentments to actual legitimate political grievances, which there are, right? So in a way, that's part of what has let this fester for so long is the left's unwillingness to think carefully about what really are the political objectives of the people who are drawn to Trump? And I think that answer has to be different now than it was in 2016. I mean, I, I will I will confess, I, you know, I am a historian. I make a poor pundit, but I think prophecy is very difficult to do in any time, but we live in extraordinarily uncertain times. But I thought when Trump won in 2016, my explanation largely had to do with Hillary Clinton, who I thought was a terrible candidate, was represented the worst of the Democratic Party. The fact that she was given a path to the nomination by the Democratic Party leadership represented an utter failure of the Democratic Party. Like, I just thought, I, I you know, I didn't vote for her in the primary. Like, I had a hard time with Hillary Clinton, and, I, and I'm a partisan, you know. And, uh, but Biden's not winning resoundingly. I mean, he had a very significant, sizable lead and it was a it was a great political triumph, of course. It wasn't the resounding landslide that people expected who, like me, had thought that the problem, the reason that Trump won in 2016 was because Clinton was such a bad candidate. But I still think the left hasn't really thought through what it is about and this this is a problem for Trump supporters, right? That they that they are people who do have legitimate policy differences and political views and opinions that are not being addressed by people wielding power. And in fact, every time they elect somebody, they just get betrayed by the people that they elect. And yet the people that they don't elect aren't really interested in their political views either. So they're getting increasingly frustrated. And I think they will, I, I think there's a real opportunity for Biden to break that cycle to some degree, but I don't know how how well he'll be able to do that, given the fundamental instability of the republic day to day. I mean, here, people are really worried day to day what's going to happen next. So if the frame of reference, at least in part, has to be outside of American history, it it could be from non-American history, including European history. I I gave the example of Spain. But also, you know, there there are comparisons being made all the time with other authoritarians around the world with the, the Orbans and the Erdogans. And yet it seems to me what happened last week, if you think about that that form of politics and the way in which in places like Hungary or Turkey, it has co-opted the institutions of the state and also the media, universities and so on, at least sought to co-opt them. The Trump project does not seem to have done that. And in some ways, the symbolism of what happened last week was not that he had co-opted, say, the armed forces or the police it was that he, you know, what he has been doing in a way is collapsing or emptying out the institutions of the state. And so it did seem like there was a suitable symbolism in what happened in that, no, it wasn't soldiers or 
police officers storming the legislature, demanding anything. It was police officers failing to stop it. And that seems quite distinctive to the event itself and also a difference between Trumpism and what's been happening in in places like Hungary or even Putinism, Erdogan, where it is a co-opting of institutions rather than just a, a hope that they will be so empty, they will be incapable of stopping something. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And, you know, there's a longer tradition of the independence of those institutions. There's more security to them. There's some more stability to them, just given their durability and the the, the length and age of American democracy and of, of the civic institutions that you would need to thwart in the United States to successfully maintain power against an overwhelming election that was your defeat. That said, though, I, I don't really think those institutions, the, the co-opting of them, it's not for lack of trying that Trump yeah. didn't co-opt them, but the co-opting of them actually had already taken place. I mean, I, I think of much of the last half century as having been a very slow and steady and extraordinarily successful aggregation of cultural power on the part of conservatives, notwithstanding the whole conservative argument that liberals own the culture and that's the problem. But, you know, from a position of relative political powerlessness in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, the kind of William F. Buckley, Barry, Goldwater moment, conservatives decided that the the way to gain, the only way to gain political power in the United States would be to slowly take over institutions that arbitrate knowledge. What are the institutions that decide what's true and what's not true? And those are the university, you know, the academy, journalism, and the courts. I mean, literally, the courts decide verdicts, what's true, what's not true. The university is the world of the kind of production and dissemination of knowledge, and journalisms are seeking to, you know, to report what's going on in the world. And it took many, many decades, but you could watch that unfold. If you could kind of watch a kind of like um like an anime, like a stop action animation of how that all worked, right? So with the courts, the, the decision was, you know, you can't, you can't erect an, an alternate court system. You have to take over the courts. That's the only thing you can do. So, you know, they formed the Federalist Society and in the early 1970s devised the kind of originalist theory of constitutional interpretation, which finally gains power with Reagan's election in 1980. And then he appoints Ed Meese, his, his attorney general, and the Reagan era court appointments, which are these originalist court appointments, are what set in motion a complete recasting of the direction of the Supreme Court, which had been really a very liberal Supreme Court, of course, in, this, in the 60s and 70s. And that is effectively accomplished. I mean, and, and Trump did deliver that. That's that's one of the reasons um, his base is so loyal to him because of his Supreme Court appointments, but not just the Supreme Court, the whole federal judiciary. So, okay, so they succeed. <laughs> they really succeeded in taking over the courts. Like who decides what's true, what's not true, what's law, what's not law. The university I think in many ways was complicit in the destruction of its own intellectual authority. I mean, this is, I think, the justifiable critique, powerful critique of postmodernism. And it's kind of recklessness. It's like it's intellectual recklessness, like intellectual playboyism, like a gigoloism or something. Isn't that then more like the hollowing out, the university one? So the courts I completely take, although, again, there's a question about whether it's, is is, is Trump, Trump, it seems like an incidental figure, though it happened on his watch. I mean, it's more like the Mitch McConnell Republican Party that's won there. But the university, there are some rival structures of authority and knowledge dissemination, but isn't it more, as it were, standing by and hoping these things don't prevent rather than taking them over? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, but, you know, I think the general approach there was, you know, the kind of continued, a kind of, on the one hand, an anti-intellectualism, you know, the sort of thing that Richard Hofstadter identified in the 1950s of kind of McCarthyism, an attack on universities as left, right? Everything that comes out of the university is biased because the university is a bunch of lily-livered liberals or something. But then there is actually an intellectualism of conservatism, right? Like the kind of attempt to create a kind of conservative intelligentsia, you know, which was the Buckley kind of national review gambit. So, you know, but that was a, that has been and continues to be an ongoing effort to kind of assault the the production of knowledge and the authority of of intellectuals within the academy. And, and, and there, I think the critique is that the intellectuals can, can be charged with having some responsibility for allowing themselves to be, to lose their authority. And then of course there's journalism. And the decision there was, we'll just found an alternative media and we will destroy people's trust in the existing media by calling it the liberal media and that you know there's so much written about this but those are the three institutions that help you decide what's true and what's not true in the world and long before trump came along in fact the reason trump could succeed was because of the work that was done to demolish destroy undermine or offer up alternatives to those institutions talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Where do you stand on impeachment? So we're having this conversation on Monday evening, my time, Monday lunchtime, your time. I believe that the Democrats have just issued, they just issued the the article of impeachment. House Democrats on Monday introduced an article of impeachment against President Trump for inciting a mob. Uh, where do you stand on that as a political strategy or tactic? It has to be done. I mean, to, to, to not file articles of impeachment after what happened, it, I just don't see, like, as a matter of principle, how you could avoid it, whether it's good politics or bad politics. In fact, I really, frankly, felt quite similarly the last time we went through impeachment was that I thought it was going to be a disaster politically for the Democrats to to pursue impeachment at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And I absolutely supported it because the kind of argument you have to say, you can't actually call a foreign leader and ask him to interfere in an American election and just go about your day. It seemed like a complete losing prospect for them that they knew they weren't going to succeed in convicting them in the Senate. And I think in a way, the mistake that the Democrats made then was by not making it a question of principle. I think they kind of acted as though they thought they could win when they knew they couldn't win. There was a kind of big kind of public pose of like, we've got to impeach him and we think we can prevail. I think they should have just said, we've got to impeach him and we know we're not going to prevail, but this has to be done. And even if it costs us the election, it has to be done because there's a bigger story here, which is the rule of law. And here too, I think he certainly should have been convicted of the last articles of impeachment, in my view. I think that the suggestion that some members of the House have made, which I suspect is is likely to be the position that the leadership takes, that he should be impeached in the House, but maybe the impeachment shouldn't be kicked over to the Senate till after Biden's first 100 days. That's the position if I were in a 
position of, of suggesting what should be done. That's the position I would suggest. I think that, you know, Biden has appropriately stayed out of it. It's not the business of the incoming president to decide about the fate of the outgoing president. But I, it, you do get the sense that Biden sort of wishes he could at least get into office and get Congress to pass some laws that need to be passed to do the things that the country really desperately needs to have done, given that we've basically had no functioning federal government for many, many months now. And if the decision is to launch impeachment, but then to delay it moving to the Senate, as it were, the trial phase until after Trump is gone, presumably the implication of that is the goal, it may not be achievable, but the ostensible goal, he can't be then punished by being removed from office, but he can be barred from ever running for office again. And that then becomes what the argument is about, should this man ever be allowed to stand for office again? That then becomes the argument. Yeah. And I think that is crucial, because I do think he would otherwise run again. And I think he would otherwise, uh, and even having been impeached, he's he's going to be causing no end of trouble. You know, I, I was asked by the Washington Post at some point over the summer, I think it must have been, what I thought about whether there should be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is another thing after Trump's end of term. And there was they were going to run a series of essays on this question. Um, and I said, all right, I guess I'll, I'll I'll offer up my view, which is that a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is not the appropriate measure here. And I also thought and and still think that it's really not the best thing for the country, for the Biden administration to be in a position of pursuing, say, criminal charges against Trump. But I also I really see the argument that it's necessary, you know, and I think it's such an incredibly perilous road. We risk now every presidential election being contested on the streets with violent street action. And I completely 100% support impeachment, but prosecution, which at the time last summer, I thought, well, maybe we should veer away from that because then every incoming president is going to want to, you know, be willing to consider criminal charges against the outgoing president once the transfer of power from party to party. That that's, that's a model of how nations are run that is a model of doom. But I, I think there's some really hard choices confronting the question of what consequences there must be and what consequences could conceivably be too much for effectively trying to destroy the country. And do you think once he's out of office, these attempts run a greater risk of turning him into a kind of political martyr? I mean, when he's in office, there is there is an imperative, and I think even among many Republicans, a deep unease about the thought of what he might do. When he's out of office and it's a question of either prosecuting him or barring him from ever running for office again, does that potentially, as it were, make it easier for the people who were horrified by last week, but nonetheless were also kind of horrified by what they think is coming under Biden to rally back around him again? That kind of political martyrdom and exile? I think he has the martyrdom whether he's impeached or not at this point, right? Yeah. He's his. Having been banned from Twitter is enough for him to whine about until he goes to his grave. That you know that that I think honestly that impeachment, the conviction of for impeachment rather than an acquittal, is extremely good for Republicans because it puts him in a place where they are not forced to choose constantly between doing what Trump says and what Trump you know riles up his supporters to want from them and what they might think is the right thing to do. So I, I wonder, I mean, I, I actually think he is quite likely to be convicted, 
but I'm I'm just hoping it doesn't come till the spring. But I, I actually sort of weirdly think that frees a lot of Republicans' hands and also, you know, renders more manifestly likely that the Republican Party will split in two and that the kind of Trump rump will be largely ineffective. One last question. You first came on our podcast, Talking Politics, around the time of Trump's inauguration. And we talked about inaugurals, among other things. And Trump's inaugural, his inaugural address still stays with me. I can still remember vividly watching it. And I can remember what he said. And in a way, what happened last week was a kind of appropriate Mm. bookend to an inaugural, which he basically said, you know, what I'm here to do is to take power away from Washington and give it back to the people, almost invite the people to come and grab it. What, what, if anything, would you like Biden to say in his inaugural about this? So as you said, he's kind of stayed out of it to a certain extent, apart from the, you know, the mm-hmm. relatively short address that he made, relatively dignified as well, although he looked a bit shaken. But mm-hmm. what, what, when he's had time to reflect and his speech writers, I don't know who they are, are no doubt crafting words for the ages. But apart from anything else, he's got to decide what to call it. And he can't not mention it, presumably. What's, what should he say? Right. You know, I think the the argument that what happened on the 6th of January was worse for the country than Pearl Harbor or 9-11 because it was an internal attack is fair. And I think he has to be willing to speak about it at that level with that degree of denunciation. I, I think that's essential. And I do think he'll do that. I think it's also important that he do that firmly, briskly and briefly. And I think it's important that he not deliver, you know, 8,000 word policy address. I think he probably needs to give a fairly short address that denounces what has happened and offers words of inspiration for how the country is fundamentally intact and will prevail against a great deal of adversity at home and abroad with new leadership and the commitment of the vast majority of Americans behind him and that he is excited to bring relief from the pandemic and the economic disaster that is the present moment. I I think, and I hope that he doesn't indulge too much in the hack, what is extremely hackneyed language of healing and unity, which at this point have been so frequently used by, including by Republicans who just days ago voted to overturn the election. I think he needs to think of a different kind of language than healing and unity. And I, 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 the kind of like Oprah language of healing drives me a little bit bonkers. So I think he needs to speak quickly, briefly, eloquently, and looking forward rather than backward, honestly. And does the language or even the word reconciliation come under the healing and unity and should be avoided? Is there, is there some space between the healing and unity that drives you mad and talking about reconciliation in a way that wouldn't drive you mad? I would like to see the language of coming together to do good work. You know, a certain sort of shoulder to the wheel. That Joe who wants to pull the Amtrak train on the train tracks, this sort of like 1930s muscular Joe. I want to hear from that Joe. I don't want to hear from an Oprah Joe. We will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore to the episode we recorded with Jill when Trump was inaugurated and also to the piece that she wrote in The New Yorker about inaugural addresses in 2008 before Obama's first inauguration. We'll be speaking to Gary Gerstle on the day of Biden's inauguration, both before and after the address. 
And in our regular slot this week, Helen and I are talking to Diane Coyle and Anand Menon in much more detail about the economics and the politics of what we now know is Brexit. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Brunsterman and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.